Hi everyone, welcome to Clearview Community Church Online. My name's Clayton, and I'm one of the pastors that calls this church home. Now today I wanna to talk to you about following Jesus and what that means for a group of people who did that 2,000 years ago, but also what that means for people like yourself and myself now. Following Jesus, it's, it isn't like how we follow people now on, on the social media. Basically, it means we're just getting occasional updates from people and pictures. But following Jesus has connotations and expectations of surrender and victory, of solemnity and celebration, of all kinds of great hope and joy and freedom as well. So what does following Jesus actually look like for you? Does that statement even make sense to you? Does, does it feel odd? I know that it did at first for me when I began to hear the phrase, following Jesus. And today we're going to explore that. So as you think about it, let me read to you from Luke chapter 14, verses 25 to 34. It says, Large crowds were traveling with Jesus, and turning to them, he said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry the cross and follow me, they cannot be my disciple. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? For if you lay the foundation and you're not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule you, saying this person began to build and they weren't able to finish it. Or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Won't he first sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him who has 20,000. If he is not able, he will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. In the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is fit neither for the soil nor for the manure pile. It's thrown out. Whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. So in our walk through the book of Luke, we're taking a turn now in the story. We've moved away from the confrontation at the Pharisee's house with a healing on the Sabbath and warnings about a banquet. And while it does move away in the chronological order, there's still a, a thematic consistency to it. Luke, here, he's established an invitation to the kingdom of God, and that invitation is extended to everybody. And those who want to receive it, they're welcome to receive it. But now, Jesus is wandering through an area, and large crowds are moving around with him, and they're telling themselves that they follow Jesus. These crowds are physically following him. It's like they're living in the mindset that they've accepted the invitation into the kingdom of God because they're physically following Jesus. But there's a bit of filling the blank happening, and Jesus wants to correct and reset this thought. You see, there's an unspoken and inherent expectation that the people had of the Messiah. They expected him to free them, yes, but more in a way like a great military general would. He would overthrow the current oppressive regime. He would establish a new kingdom and make things right again. And it all sounds pretty legitimate. And many of the people who are following Jesus at this time in that big crowd, they were raised on this idea and picture of what the Messiah would look like. 
And now with hindsight, we do see that yes, Jesus was going to free them from everything that oppressed them and everything that held them down, but in a much bigger and more powerful way than they could ever even imagine. And his expectation of those following him, it also looks different than what they were expecting. So now we get to this teaching of Jesus about counting the cost of what it means to be a disciple. And there's four pictures to illustrate it that he gives. Family relationships, building a tower, battles between kings, and salt. So let's take a look at those just for a few minutes. First, Jesus tells them, if anyone comes to me and does not hate your father and your mother, your wife and your children, your brothers and your sisters, even your own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me, they can't be my disciple. This is heavy. This is a heavy statement. Does following Jesus actually mean that I have to hate my family? Well, evidently and, and obviously not. This is hyperbole, a grand exaggeration that Jesus is using here. But it also has a bit of a historical significance. You see, in the time of Jesus, to say that you hated something in comparison to another thing simply meant to love it less. And nowhere in the teachings of Jesus is he advocating for hate or hating somebody at all. It's actually the opposite. The people that the world tells us to hate are the people that Jesus tells us to love in major ways. Jesus' meaning here is, is clearly that love that a disciple has for Jesus, for him, it must be so great that even the best of earthly loves does not compare. Discipleship to Jesus means giving one's first loyalty, first love, above your loyalties to your family. Not that those have to end or be cut off. But even the love and loyalty above your own life. Whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. This is the second time that Luke uses a statement from Jesus. A person who commits themselves to following Jesus will develop a greater love for their neighbor and their family, and even for themselves, you know, recognizing the image of God in all of them. But it will not compare to their love for Jesus as his disciple. That's the picture that Jesus paints of following him. And now secondly, Jesus gives example of this man building a tower. He says, wouldn't you first sit down and estimate the costs? And I think what Jesus is driving at here is that there are people in the large crowd that are following him, that are a part of the crowd simply because they want to be part of that crowd. But they never actually put any time into thinking about what it means to follow him. They don't realize why they signed up. They don't realize what they signed up for. And so now he tells them, sit down like the man building a tower and think about the cost, measure it. Jesus isn't asking for a hasty and an emotional, irrational decision. Instead, he urges people to think about what they're getting themselves into. And now the third image is one of a king who's about to go to war. His army is smaller than the other, half the size of the other. And he thinks about it, realizes this is not going to work. And while the other army is still far away off, he asks for a peace treaty. And this king was placed in a spot where he has to think hard. He cannot simply wait for defeat. He can't pretend that he has a chance. He has to surrender and surrender now, not later, not when it's too late. And while the parable of the tower builder, it leads us to sit down and consider whether we can afford to follow Jesus. The parable of the king in battle is to sit down and consider if you can afford to not surrender. And these two images leads to a, a condemnation of half-hearted, ill-considered, faint attachments to Jesus. 
and calls his followers in that large crowd to count the cost and consider all of it before calling themselves his followers. Now the last image is the image of salt. And Jesus says, salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's fit neither for soil nor for the manure pile, and it's thrown out. Now, it was pretty common in that area to have most of the salt come from the Dead Sea, a super-duper salty body of water you can visit today. But sometimes it would be processed poorly, and the white clumps aren't actually salt or salty. They're bland. They're not good for tasting. And the other chemicals within them actually made it useless for all the other purposes of salt. It wouldn't even decompose well. It can't even be thrown into the compost or into the manure pile as nutrients for the soil. Salt without salt is useless. Now here's an interesting note for us to understand this idea of the unsalty salt. In this moment of our New Testament, it is the Greek word morino. And while here it's translated as salt becoming or losing its saltiness, in many other locations in your New Testament, it is translated as to become foolish. What happens here? It may be that the reality of unsalty salt being foolish to use is being used to describe following Jesus without counting the cost and realizing the surrender required of actually following Jesus. All right, so what do you do with these four pictures? How do we make this hit home today in 2023? I think that among many things, there are three points that I can remind myself of today, and hopefully they're helpful for you as well. So first, following Jesus, it's a commitment. A commitment. What commitments require is someone to recognize what the cost of it is going to actually be. It's a really important cost and benefit analysis. In the picture of this scripture today, people are already following Jesus as he travels, and they're literally walking behind him, literally following him, going where he goes, listening to what he says, and even trying to do what he does. But in that crowd of people who are physically following Jesus, there are those who don't actually love him. They might love what he stands for. They might love what he could potentially do for them. Maybe they love that he's famous and they're near somebody like that for the first time. But they don't love him. They don't actually have a commitment to him. Actually, at the first moment where this becomes inconvenient for them in the story, many desert him, many leave him, and even deny knowing who he is. And so Jesus tells them, hey, if you want to follow me, you need to consider the cost. To follow him means a commitment to him, means a depth of love for him greater than what we are accustomed to or what we are used to. It means that the priorities change from every earthly thing and now are all based in who he is and what he's done in his kingdom. The commitment isn't just to follow him into the greener pastures, but to follow him in the valley of the shadow of death. The commitment is not just to this life, but also potentially to the cross. And now secondly, following Jesus requires surrender. This is kind of defining what the commitment looks like. It is a surrender. The king in the story realizes that he can aff- cannot afford to not surrender. And for us, it's similar. I cannot afford to not allow Jesus as Lord and master of my life. Now let me explain. Jesus is titled Savior and Lord throughout the New Testament. Savior meaning the one who delivers us, who frees us and rescues us from our sins. And Lord, meaning he's the one who is our master, who is in charge of our lives. And so maybe you say in response to that, well, I'm in charge of my life. I'm in charge of everything that happens to me. 
And we both know that this simply is not true. But what we can be in charge of, we are in charge of where we place our faith, our trust, our hope. We can be in charge of how we make decisions in this world. We can be in charge of what determines and feeds our desires. That is completely within our realm of decision-making and impact. And making Jesus Lord is to take all of that and place him in charge, an action of surrender. Because I know what happens when I do and chase what I want and desire and crave, and that becomes the motivating factor for all my decisions. At best, I am simply a selfish man, but at worst, I'm a horrible one. And Jesus makes it very clear that while there is a serious relational commitment being made in following him, it comes with the expectation that he is made Lord, that we live in and according to his will and not just our daily whims and wants. And then thirdly, following Jesus inherits a kingdom. So let's remember, many of the people who were following Jesus before his death and resurrection, they followed him because he was their hope for the Messiah who would establish the kingdom of God. Now, we don't use kingdom as a terminology in daily social hierarchy and structure conversations. But remember that in this day and age of Jesus, if there wasn't one kingdom running a show, it was another, and then another, and then another, and then another. New kingdoms weren't unheard of. New kings weren't unheard of. And the hope was that God sends his Messiah to establish God's kingdom. And that is established in place of whoever is there presently. And those that were invited into the kingdom, and that was every person in the crowd following Jesus, it's the people who hear him, those who experience him, those who know him. And today it's similar. Those invited are everyone. Those people are invited to the kingdom. And the invitation to follow Jesus is offered to anyone who's willing to hear that Christ lived a perfect life with no sin or rebellion in his heart or in his actions. And in his death, he took away the sins of the world. And in his death, he took all of the punishment of that and made it his own. And he offers his innocence, that perfection, to those of us now who would trust in him to be saved from our sins. And then in Jesus' resurrection, he shows us that there is no more power in sin, death, and destruction in God's good world. But instead, there is hope. There is peace. There is reconciliation. And our response to all of this is to count the cost, to live in surrender, and inherit that kingdom. So you listen today, and maybe you've never trusted Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Today is an opportunity to do so, but not to do it without thought. It's an opportunity to recognize that to follow Jesus means to value everything less than him. Doesn't mean that you don't value other things, but everything less than him. It means that your priorities and decision-making and your desires change to reflect his kingdom and not whatever kingdom you're living in now. And today it's a great day to count that cost and then enter that commitment. And then for those of you today who live following Jesus already, you've counted the cost. You live with Jesus as Lord. Do not grow weary. Remember that there is a kingdom to inherit in all of this. The benefit of surrender is actually everlasting and completely fulfilling life. I invite you to pray with me today. God, we recognize that you have offered to us the gift of freedom and following you. And so I pray that people would come close to you, that those who are seeking you would find you. And you promised that when we search for you, we will find you. You promised that. And so we trust you. We trust your faithfulness for that. God, help us to follow you and to live in a way that reflects that. Thank you for your love, your grace, and your forgiveness. 
We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, thank you for joining us. Uh, if you don't mind next time or now, we'd love to hear from you either through our online modes of communication like Facebook, YouTube, or our website, or you're even welcome to give us a phone call at the church. We'd love to connect with you and pray with you at any time. You can find all of our contact information at clearviewcommunity.church. God bless you, and we'll see you next time.